Up next, we have Drew Evans. Drew is the superintendent of the Minnesota Bureau of Criminal Apprehension, otherwise known as BCA. In this episode, Drew and Shonda talk about the BCA's role in the criminal justice system, the laws and circumstances that can prevent justice, and how the BCA is trying to build community trust and transparency in its work. I hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to the podcast, Drew. Very nice to have you uh, here with me in the discussion. Thank you for having me today. Yeah. So, you know, for the folks listening, would you mind just introducing yourself and uh, saying what you do for a living? Be happy to. Uh, my name is Drew Evans, and I'm the superintendent at the Minnesota Bureau of Criminal Apprehension. So in this role, I oversee all of our operations here at the BCA, uh, which is really three large divisions. One is our investigations division, our uh, state crime laboratory, our forensic science services, and then MINJUS, which is Minnesota Justice Information Services. And I've been in this role since uh, 2015. Yeah. And then you moved into that role from in, you were inside sort of candidate into that role. So how long have you been at the BCA overall? Yeah, so I've been at the BCA uh, since 2005 and I was a police officer before that. Uh, I did get hired into our investigations division here at the BCA and I started um, in uh, our investigations division doing homicide investigations um, in the metro area primarily. And that group does homicide investigations, officer involved shooting investigations, missing person investigations, abductions, violent crime uh, type cases, assisting local jurisdictions. I then supervised um, the same uh, group in Southern Minnesota. So for us, the way we divide up, we're a statewide organization. And I basically had, if you drew a line through Lake Mille Lacs uh, South and all the agents across Southern Minnesota. And then I was the assistant superintendent uh, for three years before this, which was the, the second in charge here at the BCA and also directly oversaw our investigations division. Wow. And then folks that work for the BCA, just to look, kind of lay sort of context, like, how do they tend to arrive? Do they have a different sort of training and investigation than what, let's say, a, a peace officer on the street would have? Yeah, so it's, uh, you know, one of the things that uh, I'd like to let the public know about is that the BCA is about 500 people, uh, professional women and men um, that do all types of different jobs at the BCA. That 500 uh, number, only about 100 of them are sworn peace officers. So the rest of our staff are scientists, IT professionals, criminal intelligence analysts. We have a whole host of different roles that we uh, fulfill for, for Minnesota. For our investigators or our agents here at the BCA who do our criminal investigations, Right now, we hire all of them primarily. They were criminal investigators at a different agency prior to coming to the BCA. So they have a, a variety of backgrounds and experiences, but they are conducting criminal investigations as detectives at police departments, sheriff's offices, federal entities, and then they uh, apply for the BCA, go through a fairly rigorous screening process. And we're really looking for the best and brightest and um, uh, to come work with us, uh, working on some of the most complex cases across Minnesota. Can uh, officers join the BCA that haven't been employed within our state? 
Yeah, absolutely. So um, even in our current hiring process, which is not completed, so I won't talk about them specifically, but we have uh, other individuals from out of state Minnesota that are coming here right now. Um, some of the uh, good candidates from other states, they can really be um, in any law enforcement agency, but we do uh, see others, the equivalents of the BCA in other states often applying here, coming to work with us in Minnesota. And we have a number of agents that were employed by the, the same type of organization in a different state that now work for us. Mm -hmm. One of the reasons that um, I was really interested in having this conversation with you, and actually it probably came to mind about a year ago when um, we were serving, I was serving on um, the task force for police involved deadly um, incidents, and you were advising to that. And there were a couple of sort of ahas that that I had during that 10 months or whatever it was that we were together. And um, coincidentally, today we're talking on the day where we're going to be sharing sort of updates of what has happened since those recommendations came out. But it, it's really funny because for me, the BCA has sort of been a background agency um, until most recently when we've seen this elevation of police-involved deadly incidents. And then there was lots of cries on how it should be an independent um, organization or investigative um, sort of unit to avoid conflicts. And, you know, I think I was probably on that bandwagon until I got to learn a little bit more in terms of how it functions. You have been leading during the evolution of how people have seen the BCA. Like, how has that impacted you? So it's a really excellent question. And, and you're right. One of our um, values as an organization is partnerships. Oftentimes we're providing specialized expertise, resources, technical assistance to law enforcement throughout Minnesota to help keep their communities safe. As you noted, in particular with our work in officer-involved shootings, and in particular Minneapolis and St. Paul, which are two cities that really didn't see our work because we were always providing that kind of background assistance, whether it's our laboratory or justice information systems. And so a lot of citizens uh, did not see the work of the BCA and how it impacted their community until it was front and center in some very controversial cases. And what that's meant for us in a, a variety of terms and from leading this organization through some of that is that it, it required us to, to really create relationships and continue to work on relationships with community, in particular in Minneapolis and St. Paul, because there's people that don't know us and, and people that often had strange challenge relationships with their own police departments. And one of the things that we're continuing to work on is to really help understand and differentiate. We are an independent law enforcement agency. The city of Minneapolis does not direct our investigation and conflict investigations or officer-involved shooting investigations in particular. In those cases, we either say we will do everything and we do it with no direction from anybody else to conduct that truly independent, unbiased investigation in that process. But it really has created um, a, a, a situation for us as an organization where we really need to think about what is community to us? What communities do we need to make sure that we're strengthening partnerships with, not just our law enforcement partners, but really communities across Minnesota, and in particular communities that may not have the, the strongest relationship with their police departments, so they really understand what our role is. Because people didn't know what our role is. You're right, we really were a background organization that provided 
assistance um, to these agencies across Minnesota. And then we're front and center with a crime scene van in the middle of a tense situation. Um, and that can lead to uh, people not understanding our role. And that's our job to really create those connections. So it's been um, uh, an evolution for us and one that's ongoing to this day. And it's led to things like hiring our first ever victim family and uh, community services coordinator for Minnesota to help us do that work and, and flag uh, blind spots for us as an organization. You know, it was a really sort of a proud moment around the table when we were listening to uh, families that have been impacted. And I think it was Wanda Johnson and Valerie Castile that came in and just said, like, when there's a deadly involved incident, who who's there for the family? Right. Where do we get information? It's 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 lacking. It could be better. And I remember just this right away movement with the AG, with Commissioner Harrington and you to say we can add this position. So even before we finished, we had moved on that. Biff2 has done an incredible job. She was an amazing hire. Um, but how, how has that position transitioned? And do you think that um, do you think that she can make a difference inside of a, a system where people have sort of concerns about um, its ability to serve the community? Yeah, absolutely, I do. She's been a, a wonderful hire for us. And as you noted, we recognize the importance um, even before the Deadly Force Encounters Working Group. Uh, this was a, a topic that we were exploring. But as you noted, we heard really loud and clear from families, and I certainly did, and Commissioner Harrington did as well, that this was a pressing need that just couldn't wait until we received even the, the funding to, to fund this position. So we adjusted internally, held different position open so that we could hire uh, her and, and get her working um, on, on these very issues. I absolutely think she can make a difference. And the way she can make a difference for us is she is um, very much engaged in community conversations and different working groups in areas that uh, we can't always be depending on our role and what we're doing. And so she can be that conduit to really hear what the community is saying. She can hear from them what the needs are. She can hear from families uh, and what they're experiencing. And one of those uh, areas, just as an example, uh, she heard loud and clear from families uh, when she was working with them that they were really struggling to be able to pay for things like funerals when the family's impacted by a police involved uh, a deadly force encounter. Uh, same thing with mental health services. And so she was able to inform us at the BCA, Commissioner Harrington, and then Governor Walls. And Governor Walls has a proposal, Minnesota Heals, that's uh, 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 looking at actually the issue holistically. There's also uh, counseling services for police officers to create healthy police officers to police in a way um, that uh, uh, they do, uh, they can come healthy to work every day, um, but also recognizing the needs of the family. And that's just one example that she pushed forward right away in communicating with our, our families uh, across Minnesota. She also, on a regular basis, will be at meetings and, and will flag issues for me, for example, um, that we talk on a regular basis. And we set up her reporting structure very um, intentionally. She has a direct line of communication right to me, even in a large organization. And I probably meet with her at least uh, once a week, once every other week, talking about different issues and way we can improve as an organization to meet uh, those community needs. So, you know, change and lasting change, I've always thought is, is incremental in some ways, but it's identifying those areas where we can improve and ultimately uh, will lead to a better place of trust uh, with our organization really across Minnesota, and which in turn 
hopefully will improve trust with policing um, as a whole in our state, especially in some of the communities that do not trust policing uh, in a way we would like them to. Yeah. One of the other sort of recommendations that came from that report, and we 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 had kind of a a dynamic, uh, tense conversations um, around that table. I mean, it was an unlikely bunch coming together. And, um, you know, there were all kinds of points of views and we, we probably would never sit together on any other occasion. But one of the topics was around this independent investigative unit and whether or not it should even be in the BCA. And where we landed um, collectively is that there could be a special unit inside of the BCA um, that was a recommendation. And from my understanding, it's been moved on. Could you, could you share a little bit about what that is, how it will function differently or report differently? Yeah, so the uh, legislature um, funded, and it was really a direct um, recommendation from the working group uh, to create an independent force investigations unit. You know, I, I, as I advised uh, your your working group that I have full faith and confidence in my investigators. They're professional women and men that come every day that want to just get to the truth of the investigations that they're working on. But I also heard very clearly that that there is a concern about agents that are working on a homicide, which I did myself uh, one day in a community, and then I'm there investigating an officer-involved shooting the next day. Could there be relationships that are developed that may not um, lend themselves uh, to be truly independent and unbiased? And I think we as an organization um, at the BCA uh, can certainly understand and see that point of view. And so we supported the creation of this force investigations unit, which the legislature has now funded for a few years, but I'm, I'm confident the proof of the concept will work and that it will be uh, an advance in the way we do these investigations. And due to the, the, um, the really the workload associated with these cases now, it made sense to really focus on this very specialized uh, type of investigation. And so we've already created the unit. We have a special agent in charge that's in charge of the unit. Uh, we have an assistant special agent in charge that uh, is in the unit as well, and about six uh, internal investigators that have um, moved into that unit, but then we're hiring an additional six outside people, and well, five currently, and we're still debating um, the last position. And they will be agents that focus exclusively on use of force investigations, uh, conflict of interest is what we call them, but if it's a public official, police officer accused of some other type of crime, and then uh, criminal uh, sexual conduct cases involving peace officers, which was also assigned to this unit. They're fully independent from the rest of our investigations unit. Um, they're actually even housed here at our headquarters location, just adjacent to, to where I sit, which is kind of the administration side of our building outside of our investigations unit. They're still sworn special agents that do this type of work and they have access then to all the different resources because for us as an investigation is not just the agents. We also have our crime laboratory, our crime scene team. We do a lot of digital evidence examination with body cams, uh, video that we retrieve, video from uh, uh, different uh, locations where we're at, from businesses, et cetera. But they will then work together as a unit and we are stationing them all across the state so that even if our other agents need to assist on an investigation, all these cases will be led by somebody from that independent unit. And uh, we are in the current process of hiring those others. We have five candidates identified 
um, right now that will be great additions with a, a lot of experience doing a variety of investigations across Minnesota. And it's important to us um, to, to ensure that we really have uh, excellent agents in that unit that really understand the charge of what they're there to do. And it's to conduct those independent unbiased investigations without uh, any particular direction. And so I have confidence in them that they uh, will do that uh, moving forward. And that that again will build further trust to say this is a unit even outside of the regular investigators that are working day to day with the agencies across Minnesota. Yeah. What is the diversity of your uh, staff in that unit? I, I, I anticipate I know the, the answer to that, but what does it look like and what intentional efforts are you making, both gender balance and racial? Thank you. This is a great question. So Commissioner Harrington, if he was on this call, I, I, I steal his line. So I, that's why I have to reference him. Um, he says, you know, he said it for many years since he was a police chief that we should be reflective and responsive to the communities that we serve. And we very much believe in that here as well. And so that that reflective meaning that the racial and, and gender makeup of that unit should be reflective of Minnesota. I'm a little bit out in front of myself because those people have not been hired, um, but we'll be in the, from a racial makeup of 28 to 30, um, 30% people of color that will be in that unit. Um, the, uh, the, uh, I'm, now I'm questioning myself. I think right now from, uh, uh, there will be hopefully uh, four uh, women in that unit, which for law enforcement, which traditionally is you know around 10%, it's a real focus of ours. And when you ask about uh, being intentional, we left the last position open uh, in this uh, unit because we wanna ensure that we really are out looking for uh, the uh, diversity that we seek. And part of it is for us is that we're a statewide organization. So one way to look at race and gender is to look statewide, but you also need to look at where this unit is working. And so that we really are, uh, if the bulk of the cases are in areas serving uh, uh, communities with larger uh, populations of people of color, that we need to make sure that we have a larger uh, population within our unit as well. And so we're really going to focus on recruiting and we've been out doing that. We've been having conversations with uh, uh, people that we know are excellent investigators and we're gonna try to get them uh, to come to the BCA. Um, we also have a few options internally of uh, some of our other agents of uh, color that may consider going into this unit um, as well. But we certainly need to uh, have people that, that wanna be in the unit for the right reasons too. And so it's that balance of ensuring that we're reflective of uh, both the, the genders um, in Minnesota and uh, our racial makeup, but also ensure that we really have the right skill set too. And so we've been very intentional about that. I'm pleased with, with where we're at, but it's a continuous um, uh, work that we need to undergo. I teach at a couple different universities and I it, it's been a challenge um, of the last year with some of the concerns about policing across the United States to really convince. I have a lot of students that wanna go into criminal justice but convincing them all that you really need to consider law enforcement is still a challenge for us and something that we need to be working on. Because for me at the BCA, and we've really challenged our investigations division, our laboratory, everybody, that while we're taking people that are currently investigators oftentimes or police officers, we still have a vested interest in moving high school kids and other people into the law enforcement pipeline so that when they get to the phase where they can apply for the BCA, that we have that diversity that we're looking for in our organization. And so we've been um, 
planning and working COVID's had a little bit of a snag for us, but really getting out to even high schools and talking to high school kids to think about an organization that a lot of high school kids may not think about um, so that they're thinking down the road and how we can give them the path to get to a BCA and what we can really counsel them in many ways. These are the steps you need to take career-wise so that you can be um, uh, really a, a attractive candidate when you come and apply for our organization. Right. You know, some of the, you know, the community trust, I sit squarely sort of in the middle of that, you know, personally. Um, And, you know, I've said like, you know, I have family members who are police officers and I've watched the treatment of them as African-American officers and and how they're treated by the public um, in some cases. And then um, I've had a son who experienced getting beat up by the police and some other sort of harassment as they start looking like men. Um, And then I chaired the Police Activities League board, right? Like my emotions are kind of all over the place. But I do think that there is um, a fair sort of point from community and um, of, you know, we we recognize, or at least I recognize, I'll I'll speak in eyes, that there will be some situations in which officers need to defend themselves and it may result in a death. The videos that we have seen, um, and especially the ones locally um, with with Philando or others, you know, it, it doesn't um, end up resulting in the type of justice that that we would expect to have happen. Is that a matter of the investigation? Is it a matter of the law? Is it a matter of like the blue code? Like, what is your assessment of that? It really excellent, complicated question. Uh, You know, for us at the BCA, our job is to get to the truth as to what occurred. That's really our role. Investigate, present the facts, go to a prosecutor, make a determination. Now, you know, I think um, the the conversation that, that I often hear is that there's certain conduct by police officers that the community just doesn't feel is appropriate. And and appropriate, that's not even the right word, meaning that it should be unlawful. It should result in punitive uh, measures. In other words, it broke the law. Whereas we had a law then that we're looking at that um, has now been changed. Uh, the, The actual use of force law has been changed in Minnesota. And I think what going through and watching that legislative process, that's what I heard loud and clear that people felt there was certain conduct that was not resulting in criminal convictions of police officers that they wanted to ensure does result in a criminal conviction in these sets of circumstances, whatever it may be. And, you know, the term, um, uh, the the difficulty with use of force uh, cases involving peace officers is it's really, um, you know, an easy decision when you see things like North Carolina, when you shoot somebody in the back running away from a police officer, like that's a a really uh, easy in terms of that's, you know, murder every day, all day long. When you have a law that says you can protect uh, themselves from apparent great bodily uh, harm or death, that is, it creates a, a large gray area in terms of what results in uh, a violation of the law. Meaning that from from my perspective um, in doing these investigations and overseeing them, there's a lot of facts and circumstances that are very much dependent on the investigation at hand. Our job at the BCA is simply to collect all that information and analyze that information, analyze the evidence, and then the prosecutor needs to apply the law. I think moving forward that um, 
the analogy that I've been using with the old laws is that think of a dimmer switch in terms of what is legal and illegal conduct. That, that can change depending on the facts and circumstances. I think the attempt with the legislature with this new law is to create more of a light switch. And meaning that this conduct is here, this conduct is here, and that it's very clear when it's illegal, when it's not illegal conduct by a police officer. And we'll have to wait and see if that's how that law uh, plays out. But certainly our analysis of it believes that, that it is narrowing the situations in which a police officer can use deadly force. So it's a matter of, of applying um, that law to answer your question um, by a prosecutor, but they, they were working within the law. And I think that um, generally speaking, the prosecutors were using the law that was available to them and then applying it to the facts. I'll also say that um, for many, many years, um, it, nobody was charged in this state. Um, I don't know, uh, prior to, to, to 2015, um, I don't know of a case uh, that was charged criminally in Minnesota. And so I do think that they also, um, prosecutors struggle to apply a law that when it's in our criminal code, that the use of deadly force by peace officers, but then if they violate that law, you then switch to the murder statutes, the manslaughter, the murder uh, statutes that are available to us. And it doesn't always fit cleanly into one of those statutes with an officer involved shooting just because of the nature of what's occurring. So I know that's, I mean, you're, you're hearing uh, without talking about current cases, um, you're seeing debates by prosecutors right now trying to reinstate different charges and trying to charge different ways and some getting dismissed, appealing them to the court. Part of that is the reason is because the conduct by peace officers in these situations doesn't always fit cleanly into our criminal code. Hmm. Yeah, there's so much in that. And I think it's important because, you know, we're basically in legal strategy now, right? Like, you know, the truth is is there somewhere, but we're really in, in a point of legal strategy. But in terms of not just sort of the um, recommendations that came forward in our report, but would you be willing to share maybe other sort of reforms that you are either that you've moved on of late that you um, hope that can happen? Will you just share some of that with us? Yeah, I'd be happy to. So the um, an, another portion of the uh, process um, that you were working on, but independently of the working group, is we went through a continuous improvement review of our cases. I think part of uh, another portion of, of an organization to continually improve and build that trust and transparency is we need to be willing to look internally at our own work and make sure that we're measuring up to what we say we're measuring up to. Um, daily and there were recommendations that came with that and ones that we've uh, instituted and we're in the process of doing that. Some of that's from a policy perspective, but some of it's also um, very intentional work that we'll be doing going forward, having specific training plans for the agents that are assigned to this unit, going over um, very from death investigation, which is often what we're doing, but also things like cognitive bias training so that we're really looking at, are we being very open-minded in these investigations? Are we making sure we're not jumping to conclusions based on previous work that we've done and making conclusions rather than truly investigating fully along the board? We also um, continue to work and we do this as an organization, you know, racial bias training for all of our agents so that we understand and recognize the biases inherent within all of us and how does that apply to our work and so that we really truly are being um, that independent organization fully examining every case as we should. We've also worked on a, that we've implemented a conflict of interest policy. 
you know, there's about 10,000 or 11,000 peace officers in Minnesota. So it's a relatively small community. You're going to know people that uh, are part of these investigations. It's important that we recognize that, but we also then have a policy in place that we conflict out that agent from working on that case. And we have a process in place now um, that we did uh, previously, um, but it was done informally. And so this is a formal process that we're, we're working on now. We also, um, in, in interest of creating that transparency, we'll be posting all of our files online. That's part of the law as well. And it was one of the recommendations so that the public has ready access to them. Uh, they'll be redacted, but we'll have access to that so they can see the investigation. They can see exactly what we did in all of these cases. We've also uh, challenged um, our agents uh, to, to make sure the community has answers uh, as quickly as possible to really conclude investigations within 60 days. The investigation needs to be done correctly. So, so that's gonna grow and shrink with time, but we set that deadline so that we're really intentionally moving through our cases so that we get that to the prosecutor. And we've created um, uh, processes as well that you, you probably heard during the working group as well about being in contact with prosecutors early, often, and regularly. So that once they get the case, they're not also having to start from scratch so that they can make an analysis of what it is and, and make a determination if they're going to decline the case, go to a grand jury or charge the case um, in, a, in a timely fashion. Uh, we've talked about B2. Her work's really important to this unit. She's embedded with that. We've also um, worked on a, a number of different um, uh, educational resources and have a number in uh, in. in process right now to provide, you know, really an overview of what we do, how we do it. There's no secret to our investigative process. I mean, there really isn't. And so the more we can communicate with law enforcement, the community, uh, civic leaders across our state, that's a, a really good thing. We have uh, revisions to our criminal sexual conduct policy, uh, just a whole bunch of things we're really working on. And again, that uh, the work, um, of these agents, they're very uh, professional and they know uh, how to do these investigations have for a long time, but it's constantly re-examining our work and making sure that we're doing things to ensure transparency in our work so that things that we've always done, we make sure they're documented so everybody can see them. And then areas that we can improve, whether that's through our training process, whether it's through those connections with community groups, with uh, civic groups across Minnesota, it's important that we're always working on that. And that's what we've been doing so far. Mm -hmm. The length of time of investigation is uh, interesting. It was one of my ahas um, during the meeting. And so we often hear release, release the video, release the videos when there are incidents and the public knows that there's a video, um, but it's not really one video anymore. And I guess I really did not think about the volume of evidence and how that's changed as a matter of um, sort of community reporting and, and other, you know, ring and all the things, home home videos. So can you can you just shed a light on when can you release a video and what does that evidence, how has that evidence changed over time? Yeah, uh, so video has become um, really one of the most challenging aspects of these investigations and mainly just due to the volume. In fact, I saw uh, an email go out yesterday looking for help reviewing uh, some videos because some of these large events um, uh, where there's, I shouldn't say large events, a large uh, areas um, where there's a lot of police officers that may respond to a scene, we can sometimes have 300 plus body camera videos alone that we need to review in real time 
And the reason is, is because they may not have been involved in the incident. It may not capture the incident itself, but we need to know, did they talk about the incident? Did they have a conversation with another officer or an involved officer? And so we really need to go through that to ensure the prosecutor has the full picture. Same thing from ring doorbell. Think of everybody in every place I go now has video streaming and it's a lot of video that we need to download, we need to preserve, we need to analyze, we need to review. Um, part of that process in terms of when people say release the video, our job at the BCA really is to protect the integrity of the investigation so a prosecutor has a full picture of what's going on and that they analyze that. To release a video in Minnesota while it's an active criminal investigation, um, the, the, it's a fairly limited area which you can do that and it's to dispel widespread rumor or unrest. That's really what the, the, the legal threshold is. There's really, and a law enforcement agency can do that. So for us in these investigations, that really leaves the involved agency or the BCA. And from our perspective, it tends to be that the involved agency is often the most proper agency to do that because they're the ones policing that community and the cry is coming from their community. And so as you've seen in a number of situations, whether it be Chief Arredondo or Chief Axtell, most in particular have released some videos, they communicate with us. And really the only ask that we have is if there's key witnesses that we haven't interviewed to, to, to time that so that we can interview those witnesses. And the reason for that is that we need to know that when a witness um, that we interview, whether it's a peace officer or um, uh, a, a citizen that may have observed a particular event, that that their their uh, thought process is not in any way shaped by a video they may have seen online because it's not their viewpoint, it's not where they saw the incident. We really want them to describe to us what they saw from their point of view. And so we work through that, but uh, certainly our perspective at the BCA has been um, police agencies need to do what is best for their community when it comes to making a determination on whether or not to release a video. Is there a standard or a uh, legislative sort of mandate on how long the videos can be held? So it, right now, video um, it, under our, our current Data Practices Act, uh, that, that video is not public information until there is a decision not to pursue is what the case uh, says. So in other words, the case is closed. So that really typically means either once it's been presented in open court, it becomes public at that point in time, or if the case is declined uh, for prosecution, it becomes public at that point in time. Otherwise, you do need to use that exception in the in the, the law to release that video. So this is certainly an area that I think more conversation can be had. Some states release all video after 30 days, some do it after 60 days, some do it right away. It really depends. And I think that uh, this is one of those areas that we should continue to have conversations about as to when is the appropriate time for video in these incidents to be released. Yeah. Do the families get any say on the release of videos? So the families uh, for us is our perspective um, with families really should be that uh, they see it before it goes to the public, but just before it goes to the public. And so uh, that is a, a, a topic that we've heard from a lot of families that they would just like to see the video. Um, the, the law really is fairly clear that it's it, it becomes public information. So if we show the family, we really should be showing the public. Um, we all, we absolutely always want to show the family before it becomes public so they can be ready emotionally for what uh, might be coming once that video is released. Because it's uh, never uh, easy for anybody to see um, deadly force of any kind used uh, for anybody. And that's a it, it's a traumatizing um, event for, for the public as a, a whole and certainly for the family members.
Yeah. One of the other things that I learned um, during our time together was that there's not a database of officers that have been involved in deadly encounters. Are you in favor of that happening or what is your point of view on that? You know, it's, it's a, I think that's a, you know, interesting question. Um, it really would depend on, on what the purpose would be for it. So um, I don't think there's any harm in knowing uh, the people that have been involved in these encounters, but it can be challenging. I mean, as you've uh, noted before, uh, it could be a situation where, I mean, somebody's truly shooting at a police officer and they're defending their life in that process. If that happened more than one time, uh, which has happened, uh, you know, is are we unfairly labeling that police officer who truly was? However, we also know that a lot of police departments across Minnesota use early warning systems. And if we see a one particular peace officer involved in use of force event after use of force event, it should flag for us that there could be a problem with that individual. So certainly um, there's attempts, I will say, with the um, peace officer discipline database that the post board is in the process of creating that may not be exactly on point with, with this particular, but there, that is the goal is to identify, are there problematic peace officers in the state that are being disciplined on a regular basis so that the public has a better insight as to, to what's going on. And that I absolutely uh, think there is value to. I mean, I have a law license as well. If I get sanctioned by the Board of Professional Responsibility, it's publicized, it's put on a website, you can search and see if I've had discipline. We absolutely in this professional policing need to hold ourselves to the same standards as other professions have for a very long time. Mm-hmm. And and Drew, are you um, sort of a voice on those sort of early warning systems? I mean, it seems like it's a little bit outside of your purview, but in a lot of times when these officers get involved, there's basically sort of, you know, in some cases sort of like we're not surprised we have, you know, so there's like so many things that aren't working before it even gets to you. And so you know, do you use your influence or is it even important to be using your influence to figure out how to do that to stop more of this? So one of the things from your working group that that I'm a strong advocate of and, and that hasn't really moved is the concept of like an NTSB review. So the national transportation, when a plane crashes, we really dissect that going backward and look for what led up to this crash. And the same type of concept really um, should be done in a a non-punitive way to really identify where there's systemic problems within a police agency, with this individual, things that we missed along the way so that we can improve moving forward. We're not going to undo the particular event. We may move forward with a prosecution, um, an individual if it's against the law, but we also need to be thinking about how then do we improve systemically so we identify in those systems um, more, more quickly before we get to the point where something really bad happens. And we should wanna do that. And I still advocate that that would be uh, a really good uh, uh, process that we could put in place that's really complicated. Um, but that it would really put us in a better position to examine these. And that's really from our perspective where it is. Now, one of the recommendations from our report, our continuous improvement report, is to to look for ways to identify if there are training flaws, if there are flaws within a system for the police agency. And we have done that uh, informally if, if we see something up front that, you know, really uh, is a challenge, but it, it it traditionally is not a role of ours um, in terms of pointing that out to the uh, police agencies in particular, because our goal is to gather all of that evidence. But at the same time, we do have a unique view and that's where items like this review board, there's a way for us to identify what 
processes might be put in place that could really get to those things that people are looking for while not compromising our real role of being that independent lens, gathering all the information for the, the case. Mm-hmm. The other thing that you mentioned and we talked about uh, right before we went live on the podcast was the pandemic and how we are just working, right? Like just in a very complicated time, just how me and you are showing up to work every day. But how has the pandemic, like, I guess I didn't think about, like, how do you do an investigation during a pandemic and how has it had impact? So it it impacts us and it impacts us in a way that a a number of agents have gotten sick because we, for them, they just need to, uh, uh, the investigations go on and and they're on the front lines with a lot of other frontline workers uh, across our uh, state. And so they've been doing that throughout. The challenge for us often becomes is that if we are working with somebody that's COVID infected and we don't know about it, due to the nature of our cases, we're often spending an hour plus with that individual. So even though we're taking all the proper precautions, um, we've had a number of agents exposed and get sick as a result of our investigations. However, um, our agents um, in particular were well suited for COVID in many respects because we work all over the state, um, they were always mobile. So we always were working out of a suitcase and out of a, a briefcase. And so they had all the equipment to really be able to work out of their homes and then they come together uh, to work. It's been a challenge for some of our other areas. Um, our laboratory in particular has to be here. Uh, the lab is here. And so they work out different shifts where they come and they do their analysis and then they do all of their uh, work um, at home when they do the report writing, analyzing the data, all that different stuff. So it's been a challenge, but at the end of the day, public safety uh, has to go on. And so uh, we have really a dedicated staff here that takes their mission really, really seriously. And so I couldn't be more proud of the work that they've done to really uh, work within the confines of, of what COVID creates for us, but making sure that we really haven't missed a beat. In one odd um, uh way it's been good for us uh, because court has not been in session as much and our scientists spend a lot of time driving all over Minnesota and waiting in courtrooms and and uh, testifying about their analysis and so without that we've been able to do more of this it saves us a lot of drive time and uh, uh, go to court hearings remotely and they've been able to then um, uh, really get more work done than they would have. However, we're very concerned when courts open up fully again that uh, we're really gonna get backlogged. So there's gonna be a downstream effect that's really gonna impact our organization. Yeah, before we close, um, is there anything that you would want our listeners to know about the BCA that you think is either a misconception or, or anything that you would just want folks to know? Yeah, so the, from a misconception standpoint is that I, I really do want people to know that while we provide a lot of assistance to law enforcement, we're independent of law enforcement. I don't report to any other law enforcement in the state. Um, there isn't a, a hierarchy in terms of law enforcement. We're independent and we're here to serve all citizens of this state and we strive to do that in an equitable way and we'll continue to work towards that uh, and improve our work uh, every day across Minnesota so that uh, all Minnesotans really um, receive the best services the BCA has to offer. And I've often viewed our role as creating uh, equity across the state in terms of making sure people have access to services. And while they may not see that up close, that's the goal of what we're doing. And what I mean by that is, you know, 
the affluent community that could afford, for example, um, laboratory services, if they were to pay for them, uh, shouldn't be getting better service in that community than say, even I can use a rural example of Jackson County with 5,000 residents who could never afford to be having the latest DNA technology applied to those criminal investigations. And so that's how we always look at our work is to make sure that those services are, are equitable across the state. I also would like to note for people that really we're a very broad organization. I opened by saying we have 500 employees, only 100 of them are law enforcement. And while we are a law enforcement organization, we provide a lot of specialized criminal justice services from records to fingerprints to background checks. We conduct over 500,000 background checks a year through the BCA uh, to our, our, our broad spectrum of analysis in our, our DNA laboratory to doing things like um, our fusion center that tracks all kinds of different information to keep people safe from terrorist attacks uh, to school threats to faith-based institutions and a whole bunch of different things that we're working on. But at the end of the day, our vision uh, for our organization is to deliver exceptional law enforcement services for a safer Minnesota. And well, that's an aspirational goal, but one that we're chasing every day as an organization and, and that we will continue to do and that we want to engage with anybody who wants to engage with our work so that we build trust, uh, transparency, um, and really be an organization that all Minnesotans can be proud of. And that's our goal every day. Yeah, Drew, I really appreciate you uh, taking time to, to be in this conversation with me. As we have entered, as we've talked about this incredibly complicated time and with things that are upcoming, it was important for me because all of us are have, you know, we have a stake in the future of our state and our city. And there's lots of trauma and concern and lots of citizens that are activating on how do we reform? How do we think differently? How do we reimagine and um, I do think it's important for us to just lay a little bit of, of facts and perspective on the table for people to absorb into their thought process. So I appreciate you being a partner with that. You know, I didn't think I would, I don't like the BCA and I came out of it like, okay, I have a renewed, you know, expanded point of view. And I think that's really what this is about is how do we bring information and just and just expand uh, people's points of view. And so again, thank you for your partnership in doing that. And um, it was just a pleasure. I'm very pleased with the progress we've made on the working group recommendations um, and look forward to actually seeing you in just a little bit today. Yeah, same to you and uh, thank you for having me on. I, I really appreciate the conversation. Sounds good, have a good day. Thank you too. That's Drew Evans and our host, Shonda Smith-Baker. And if you're like me, that's the first time of ever hearing what a BCA or who a BCA is. So thank you for that insight. And if you're listening to Conversations with Shonda on SoundCloud or Spotify or any platform, please make sure to subscribe. This is Supak Kienitz from the Minneapolis Foundation. Thank you for listening to Conversations with Shonda.